Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hi, this morning we're looking at 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28. I've entitled this very simply, In the first Adam all die, and in the second Adam all are made alive. Paul says a similar thing in Romans 5. We might read this section of Corinthians and imagine Paul, oh, he's a little heavy-handed here. What's a little Gnosticism among friends? A tiny bit of dualism. Maybe in which we're not caught up in the crude categories of Jewish literalism. Sure, resurrection is important, but it's not the main thing, right? Sure, resurrection, it's nice. But isn't Paul a little bit confused here? He's forgotten the main point of the salvation, right? It's missing divine punishment and you know, going to heaven when we die. He doesn't seem to know anything of Western individualism, notions of Western individual freedom. In fact, he doesn't seem to know of a Christianity surrounding a contractual atonement. Though what's a little Gnosticism among friends? Or to state it more crudely, but I believe is a direct correlate, What is a bit of child sex abuse among the clergy? In which there's the strongest evidence, I think, of a discord within. Paul would answer, You're still in your sins. You do not understand Christianity. You are worse than a pagan. And you make the gospel we have preached into a lie. We did this last week, the emptiness of dualism. He says the the gospel would be empty, your faith would be empty. It would be a disembodied faith in which the mind and the body cannot be coordinated. The apostles would be liars if dualism is true. If identity through difference is the case, then the law is primary. The apostles are liars. And in fact, human knowing Human understanding is the truth. He says if the resurrection is not the case, you're still in your sins. On down he says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Grab all the gusto you can. Embrace the darkness, the nihilism, the sin, because that's all there is. He said, dead believers are consigned to oblivion. They perish, there are no more. Now he's saying that's not the case. So let's begin reading at verse 20 of chapter 15. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn. Christ, the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. 
The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under his feet, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Paul offers no room for dualism, for separation between body and soul, for the notion that material reality is unreal, and that it's only the soul that goes to heaven. In fact, he's saying the lie, this is the lie that deludes. This is the enemy to be defeated. It is this way of dividing up the world which Christianity is supposed to defeat. Point blank, he just says, resurrection is salvation. It is the defeat of the powers. Because the powers of this world operate according to death. It is the overcoming of the final enemy. It is the reversal of all that occurred in the first Adam. And we all are found in the first Adam. It is the means in which God is made all in all. Christ's resurrection is the inauguration of a universal resurrection in which the reign of Christ, the reign of God, will be made complete. It is the establishment of the kingdom of God. And kingdom of God here means his reign, his rule, his people, according to the principle of life. It is universal. How can all of this be true? It is the case, I believe, only if the primary enemy is death and an orientation to death deployed by the dominions and authorities, which just means human modes of reign and rule, that these are defeated in resurrection. It is only true if the dualism, which would split up the body and soul, the city of God, the city of man, heaven and earth, it is only true if we understand this is not simply a theological or philosophical error. This is the lie of sin itself. Resurrection as salvation, as anti-dualism, makes sense where the body of death, the body of sin, this is Paul's language, is constituted in a lie that divides, perceived as the self divided between body and soul, in which we might say the symbolic order of the law is the soulish, you know, the spiritual, and this is pitted against the physical body. Sin, in Paul's picture, is the struggle the sacrifice of life within the eye in which we would kill ourselves in which we take death up into ourselves the battle within the eye is destructive it's self-destructive and it's destructive potentially to other people because it's violent he says should I give way to this ever-present possibility of evil it's sin within me so sacrifice whether it's masochistic sadistic is inscribed into the sinful economy. It is the agonistic struggle that constitutes the body of death. A subject, I believe, is being described which is engaged in a struggle for life that is death-dealing. And so Paul's resurrection, salvation, 
is a, a direct counter to the body of death. Now we need to get straight, body is not referring, you know, when Paul uses the term soma, he's not simply referring to the physical body, but he's referring to people, to the subject, with sin and death describing the orientation, the existential reality of the subject. So body denotes the full reality which comes with embodiment. Humans embodied in a particular environment. The body then is that which constitutes them a social being. Think here, if we miss this, we're going to miss the problem being found corporately in Adam and the solution being found corporately in Christ. That is, that we are by our very nature those who commune and communicate with our environment. This is a Wittgensteinian understanding that the subject is a body such that alienation might be experienced as having a body rather than being a body. That is, Paul's body out of control is just a subject, a person out of control. So, to be joined to the body of Christ in baptism is to close the gap within the self, the divide within the self. So sin is an apparent dualism, not a reality that is defeated in salvation. And so the, the gap, the alienation, the self-antagonism experienced as a separation between oh me and my body are not as close as we used to be or the body is in some way an unreality and there is a depth of reality in my soul this constitutes a myriad of possible worlds alternative means of constituting both the self and you know the world through these opposed pairs this is just the way you know, yin, yang, light, dark, heaven, earth, soul, body. It just goes on and on. This is what John notes in his gospel, that there is apparent dualism, there's apparent light and darkness, but the light defeats the darkness. There's apparent truth over and against deception, but the truth defeats the lie. There's apparent truth between, you know, a dualism between life and death. But is death a reality on the order of life? No, life defeats death. And this is the story of Christ. We might just take it back to the knowledge of good and evil. This is the deep grammar of sin, of dependent on an apparent dualism. Even Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, he's one of the two philosophers in the modern age that give us a reading of Genesis 3. But Hegel says, oh, we have to fall. We have to have the knowledge of good and evil so we can think. Jew, Gentile, male, female, thought and being, soul and body, east and west. You know, when we are in Japan, it's gaijin and nihonjin, inside and outside all pose identity through the difference between the opposed pairs. Or as Paul puts it, the body of death pits the members of my body against the law of my mind and makes me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. And so sin in this understanding is a way of being. It's an epistemology, a way of knowing. It's a world 
constituted in what Paul describes as a death-dealing lie. Where there is not resurrection, death reigns. And this reign of death is marked in Paul's explanation by the universal law of sin and death. Under this law, everything is split. Everything is subject to a dualism. If we think of it simply in the terms of failure of love, we can say that this dualism obstructs love, and it can do it in one of two ways. We read this morning of the Pharisees who take the law. You know, the law is a kind of positive force, maybe the law of my mind, or we could say culture, religion, law-keeping provides identity. Maybe it's just, I'm a Jew, I'm an American, maybe I'm just a cowboy, or a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. In this understanding, law gives life or being simply through that identity, being completely subject to the law. This was the Jewish mistake. I'm a Jew, therefore I'm saved. Maybe the opposite, maybe I think I have deep within me a precious treasure, myself, my ego, that cannot be defined by the law. And to stick to the letter of the law that doesn't define me, but only transgressing the law. I cannot find love through the law, but only in going beyond the law. I cannot coordinate my life or my mind with the law. This is Paul's illustration in Romans 7. The woman who would have illicit affair, you know, it must be transgressive so as to meet the needs of the deep treasure that is within me. My precious treasure, of course, and this is, this is very Japanese. In Japanese literature, what even is called love is almost it's a necessity that comes with deception. Exposure, you know, there's tatamai, the outward self, and there's honne. But you cannot reveal the inward self and, and survive. And so we might illustrate the law of sin and death as always offering these two options. Always, I think they're interdependent. The knowledge of good and evil, where the two terms depend on one another. Hegel did this in a very interesting way that I encountered in my son. My, my son, one of his first words he learned was this. He would go around and he'd point and say, this? It was a question. How, how do you answer that question? Everything is potentially this. I mean, it's endless. He could have just spent the rest of his life going around pointing. Hegel uses precisely that word. He says, apart from not this, this has no meaning. This depends upon negation, on not this, and nothingness, on death. He doesn't mean this as a convention of language. He means this as a metaphysical reality. Or take the Cartesian, I think, therefore I am. My thought is one thing and my being is another. And my thinking is an avenue to my being. And of course, this is precisely a restatement of Paul's the law of the mind and the law of the body. Feminine and masculine, you know, I'm a man or I'm a woman can become a kind of antagonistic dialectic. And so in Pauline terms, the body of death pits the members of my body against the law of my mind. Neither of these things is true. Neither of these is the Mosaic law. He says, this makes me a prisoner of the law, 
of sin at work within my, the members of my body. And this he calls the law of sin and death. The body of death does its work as the body itself with its members standing outside the law of the mind, outside of the symbolic, the law of language, we might think of it. And this constitutes the work of death. You know, in a sense, this is a convention of language. Language works through binaries. But the point in the law of sin and death where language, law, human knowledge is made absolute, what we might have thought of as a convention is reified into an imagined ontological reality. So that nothingness, Hegel's not this. Heidegger, you know, the, the premier philosophical thinker of the 20th century. What a fantastic mind. Just one little problem. He was a national socialist. He was a, a Nazi. Eastern thought with its yin-yang. It literally takes the absence, the death, the nothingness and makes it absolute. And I believe a modern form of Christianity that would, might, it might favor a kind of Cartesian version of modernity. A dualism, you know. In this philosophical, and it is a kind of individualism, truth is apprehended within. Thought, that's one side of the dualism, provides being, thanks Paul's here, body of, you know, the body of sin, the law of the mind, the law of the body. And faith then becomes its own reality. Or maybe the theological conservative might turn to empirical apprehension of reality. You know, laws of nature, laws of science, laws of reason. But these stand over and against the mind. This is John Locke. Locke thought we could be sure of external empirical reality. It's our interior reality that we cannot be sure of. But it's a faith in which cognitive affirmation then, this is why you get in a kind of theological conservatism, great concern with the historical reality. Both individualism, theological liberalism, and conservatism begin with a given reality as posited through a modern Western frame of knowledge and modern notions of self, a divided self. Paul's body of sin, body of death, is not challenged, but taken as the norm. It's presumed one has access to an already posited reality, so that we can have Christian faith, Christian ethics, but it's based on a universal known framework. And so what's obscured in all of this is what we're describing today, Paul's third law, the law of sin and death. Not the Mosaic law, not the prohibition in the garden, not the, the law written on the human heart. This divided subject which secures reality in and through what is a divided death and dualism. Resurrection defeats it. I believe that's why Paul can say, when God is all in all, when the principalities and powers, the dominions and authorities are overcome, because all dominions and authorities work through this principle. Resurrection defeats the powers as the powers rule through the law of sin and death. This is the law that incorporates the lie of sin into it as an orientation to death, in which we would imagine that we can, I think, therefore I am. We can think our way to being. But thought and being are in discord. The law of sin and death is in force in modernity, in the West, in the human condition, 
apart from resurrection. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus made me free from the law of sin and death, Paul says. Paul pictures the body of sin as being reduced to nothing from whence it came, Romans 6, 6, through a reversal of the power it exercised. And so his description of the body of death or the body of sin, he uses both phrases, is undone. It's put to death in Christ for those who have died in baptism and been raised with Christ and are joined to the resurrected body of Christ. And so baptism, life in Christ, is the ontological alternative to a living death, to the body of death, the body of sin. You know, it's displaced in the resurrection life of the spirit. It's a very simple thing. All die in the first Adam and all are made alive in the second Adam. It's not a departure from the material body or material reality, but Paul describes it as cosmic redemption. The redemption of our bodies, the redemption of the cosmos. So Christ defeated death and founded a new human subject, the second Adam, the first true human being, grounded in the spirit, in the communion of the Trinity. The fear, you know, Paul describes this in several places, the writer of Hebrews, the fear and slavery under the law of sin and death. Think of the fear of the law through deceptive desire. It founded this new law, and Paul actually, he uses the phrase of another law. So beginning with the bodily resurrection, I think we need to put that front and center in our Christian understanding. Resurrection is the solution, and as the solution, it means that death and the orientation to death is the problem. Undone then, they're resolved through resurrection. Let me just give you a simple formula. Resurrection defeats dualism. As Paul describes in both Romans and Philippians, there is knowing that's grounded in the law, or as he says, knowing from ourselves, and there's the alternative knowing the resurrected Christ. There is no available light outside of Christ. There is no possibility of arriving at truth apart from Christ because we have been given over to the lie the law of sin and death resurrection knowing knowing by the power of the resurrection guided by the spirit Paul contrasts this throughout he in 2nd Corinthians he contrasts this to knowing through the letter of the law which kills let me close with a Japanese writer named Shusako Endo Martin Scorsese we just went and saw his film Silence. It's based on Endo's novel called Shinmoku. And in silence, what is described is that Christianity cannot take root in Japan because Japan is a mud swamp. What he's missed is that the Japanese people, I'm putting that in quotes, is a relatively modern innovation that arises in the 1860s. Before that, they weren't the Japanese people. They were of the Satsuma clan, the Choshu clan. They spoke Kagoshima-ben. They spoke dialects that were incomprehensible to one another. Japanese people, American people, British people, French people. This is a modern innovation of the nation state. When you go to Japan, it's clear to you, the, the culture is a very tightly knit, punishing, shaping force on individuals in which there is a clear conformity. 
What may not be so obvious, and it almost took me going to Japan and coming back, is to recognize the exact mirror image in the West. It's the same force. The identity, the counter-identity, forged in the name of imperialism, colonialism, patriotism, nationalism, which in Japan certainly constitutes a corrosive force to Christianity, I believe it constitutes a corrosive force in this country too. It's overwhelming and we might not recognize how our own thought forms and perceptions have been shaped by modernity. In the United States, I believe we in fact are in the mud swamp, which is even more corrosive to Christianity in its adaptation to the religion to fit the needs of the modern situation. Modern theology, with its focus on Western notions of individual faith, tied to Western notions of democracy and patriotism and nationalism. In the Tokugawa era, there was a pilot, a Portuguese pilot, who the shogun sent and he said, well, if, what will happen if you let these Jesuit priests in? They will teach you Christianity. And by the way, Japan was one of the most rapidly Christianizing countries in all of Asia. Tens of thousands of Christians, and of course thousands upon thousands of martyrs. He said if you let them in, this is the first step in colonialism. Then they will come and defeat you, politically and militarily. And it's precisely what Japan's ruling elite sense, this ideological forerunner to colonialization, I think the shogun, I think the Portuguese pilot was correct. That there is a Christianity that's tied to the nation state that is used as a weapon. And the question for us is if an American faith subject to the same colonizing power can escape its grip. The way of escape is clear. He has abolished all rule and all authority and power as resurrection is the counterpower to a world built on death. He has put all things in subjection under his feet so that God may be all in all, as resurrection defeats the apparent dualism by closing the gap, the dividedness of a failed identity. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.